Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 354th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's all about becoming completely one with your legendary wallet. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Derek the Dark Mage, at Oko Assassin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Another week, another set. Looking forward to diving in once again. But before we do, I do want to talk a little bit and remind listeners that the show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, my friend, what do we have on the agenda this week? All right, James, so we have our usual four segments. We're going to start things off with the MTGO Metagame Week review, and actually we have a little bit of paper to talk about. I threw that on the calendar. Hopefully you saw it. It was a turtle weekend, so we're going to talk legacy for the first time in a while. After that, we're going to talk about segment two, where we discuss our top movers of the week and why we think we these cards saw significant gains. Then we're moving on to segment three, our cards to watch, where we'll both share what we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, we'll wrap things up with segment four, where we'll talk about some of the new previews we saw, including Phyrexia All is One, which is looking pretty flashy. I'm not going to lie. I like it. Uh, So with that out of the way, let's jump on in. What are we seeing on the uh, metagame weekend review? So easily the spiciest list I'm seeing here is this list that took down the Modern Challenge. This is a uh, mono red almost it's got four thoughtsies in there and the rest of this is red mid-range built around leveraging blood moon to punish the decks that are trying to get fancy with their mana bases it's got four ragavan a magus of the moon to give you a fifth blood moon four fury four bone crusher giant four seasoned pyromancer three fable of the mirror breaker four lightning bolt three spike field hazard four relic of progenitus to get after all the graveyard decks that are floating around of various incarnations 21 lands, including three Den of the Bugbear and those four Thoughtseize. Definitely have not seen a build like this in the top eight in a while. Well, once again, we see Companions doing well here. So this is an Obosh deck, and of course that means you can only have things that cast for Converter Mana Cost 1 or 3 or 5, I guess. Um, but here, I mean, you have pretty much all 1 and 3 drops, right? So Relic of Regenitus, um, Magus on 3, Season Pyromancer on 3, uh, Bone Crusher Drown on 3. Really the only 5 drop is Fury, which of course you could be playing for 0, and you're getting to cheat the 3 Mana Cost with Bone Crusher Giant. Um, I mean, these decks come and go, uh, but I imagine right now with so many four-color piles and other things going around, being able to play, what, let's see, four copies of Blood Moon plus one Magus of the Moon plus one in the side, so essentially six copies. Uh, anyone that's getting crushed by Blood Moon is really getting wrecked by this deck. Um, it's fun to see. It's good old-fashioned fun. It keeps people honest, honestly. The rest of this top eight was fairly straightforward, mostly things we've seen uh, a fair amount of lately. Creativity combo in second and sixth. Notably, they're running two Bitter Reunion, 
Is that a common or uncommon? Let me just double check that. Uh, it's just a common, which, you know, I think if it was an uncommon, there, there might have been a pretty good play there, honestly, because it's seen, seen a decent amount of play so far. I mean, there there are at least six or seven modern impactful commons and uncommons from, from Bro, so that's fairly impressive overall. Two copies in that second place list, four copies in the sixth place list. We've got a black red scam deck in third, glimpse combo in fourth, hammer time in fifth and seventh, and a Tron list in eighth. Uh, I also note a haywire might in the one of the hammer time lists there. Uh, so that's another one of the bro uncommons making a mark. Very very interesting. Yeah, I I I mean I'll say with the with the bitter reunion. I mean what it's allowing some of these decks to do is have a double access. So you have Arcana Cruelty coming in on Indomitable Creativity, which of course we've seen over and over again, but being able to discard and be able to reanimate with Persist is much stronger here with the Bitter Reunion. Um, you know, it's just a value card that you're allowed to pitch your Archon if you don't need it, and then be able to reanimate it, uh, giving you an extra couple copies of it essentially. Uh, between being able to play mainboard plus being able to play out of the graveyard so i think it's it's a nice little change it gives a little bit more resiliency for a deck and just goes to see the the flexibility of fable of the mirror breaker where it's fulfilling completely different roles in this blood moon list as it is in the creativity combo list that are mostly trying to get the archons into the yard so they can reanimate yep Anyway, Modern still looking like it's a good place. There, there was a huge debate amongst the regular Magic Twitter social luminaries, including X-Pro, Saffron Olive was involved, a bunch of YouTube content creators chimed in, some of us from the finance side were discussing whether Modern Horizons 1 and 2 were good or bad for Modern. And the consensus seems to be that they're negative overall. I certainly disagree. The negative label seems to be mostly associated with the amount of cards that are in theory invalidated or were knocked out of tier one tier two status in the format you know your things like dark confidant snapcaster mage etc that have completely disappeared and become less useful in people's collections than they were before but i would counter with the fact that it also activated a bunch of cards that were in people's collections that weren't doing anything worth anything that are now worth money. So yeah, your Dark Confidence are worth less, but if you had a bunch of cre- indomitable creativity sitting around, suddenly they're worth th- $25 or $30. A bunch of the cards that are in the Black Red Scam decks or this Blood Range Bid Range list weren't really doing anything until they were turned on by these lists appearing in the format. Ditto with Glimpse of Tomorrow. Uh, being a card from Modern Horizons 1 that had been almost entirely forgotten. There's all sorts of stuff in Hammer Time that was seeing zero play before that deck came to the forefront. And honestly, I I don't understand how anybody can argue that this has been net bad. I mean, there are, I think there's a wider set of viable decks that can make a top eight in this format. Many of them are required to run some number of Modern Horizons 1 or 2 cards, but I just don't think it's that big a deal. Like, Modern decks aren't overall more expensive now. There are certain exceptions. The Omnath four-color money piles with Yorion were very, very expensive. But that was more of a function of the fact that they were 80-card lists than anything else. And, you know, there I can understand people's frustration when they were thinking of this format as something where the cards they played in it would always be good to see some of them no longer be good enough in the format. I get that. I get the frustration. But I would much rather have a f- unofficially rotating format that is constantly reinvigorated and kept fresh then i would try to protect the value of my modern collection 
Yeah, the people that are complaining, honestly, I mean, they are the same people that look at Watsy, in my opinion, as a company that should be your friend, not a company that is a company meant to make profit, right? And you can't have Standard go away and be basically irrelevant and not have something replace it in terms of what's producing competitive players buying cards. If you get rid of all these things and none of them are producing profits, then the competitive scene just goes away altogether. So you have to have an avenue of new cards being printed that get into older formats. It just so happens that all of those cards, or many of them, are focused all into single sets, which they which make them easy targets for some of the hate that's out there. But, I mean, you look at, you know, all, a lot of the new sets now, they all break into older formats and again i think a lot of people want to play just what they played forever they want to be able to have their deck not update it and have it be what it is but ultimately if we want watsy to be able to produce new cards we need to have things go into formats that matter and standard doesn't matter pioneers yeah it's getting there but it's not quite and certainly wasn't when they were planning over the last couple of years so i think the the modern horizons and modern horizons 2 is almost inevitable I agree. And, and you know, we said forever before those sets showed up that they were going to print cards into this format directly. And sure enough, they did. And the idea that modern is the new legacy in terms of it being the oldest format Wizards is willing to directly support seems very much true. Like since Eternal Masters, we haven't really gotten a focused product that is aimed at the legacy and vintage players. And that was years ago. And you know pioneer is where modern was in say 2012 2013 kind of thing right like where it was a relatively young format that they were starting to consider in their product design and we will inevitably get a pioneer masters once enough time has passed although I, i am a little dubious about the necessity of such a product given the amount of reprint outlets that they currently have available so i'm curious to see how long it will take before they'll try to actually go to that well directly Uh, But I will certainly agree with you from this angle that we've discussed on this cast many times before that Wizards is only going to support formats that force you to spend money. That that's what they're here to do. (laughs) So you don't see a ton of popper support outside of the occasional, you know, pet cards getting some attention in secret layers or or what have you, or showing up as you know first time in foil and some some such product or another. But a lot of that stuff is footnotes. They, the, the format, they want you to be playing formats that make them money. And currently that is Draft, Pioneer, Modern, EDH. With EDH yep. being the number one above all others. So I agree with you that I think that Modern Horizon sets are inevitable. <laughs> and the funny thing here is we're going to be tackling this all over again in six months when they release the Lord of the Rings set direct to Modern and people are complaining about Frodo being <laughs> more OP than Ragavan. Yeah, 100%. I will say, I do think not focusing on doesn't necessarily exclude Watsi from giving a nod to the people in that community. And Legacy in particular, you know, the the ban and restricted list and things like that. I know there's been calls to do things differently there, or even just from a testing standpoint. We'll get into it here, but with the, the Legacy decks, the new white Stompy with initiative cards is something that came out of nowhere I think a lot of legacy players said, well, why didn't Wizards test this, right? Like, not test it to see if it's 100% broken, but just, like, throw some decks together and, you know, see what happens. And and I do think there's a way to put things like Legacy, where Watsi doesn't spend it, want to spend any of their own time on it, but maybe there's a community interest 
because it is really a community format at this point and just like throwing it over to the community and saying hey uh you know you have a small eight person test group or you have um you know a feedback board or you have a banner restricted controlled by community like you already do for popper now um any of these things i think might be an advancement because right now watsi just doesn't care because they're not printing cards for the format they're not getting any income from the format with very few exceptions and when that happens it's the worst of both worlds where you're not getting income so they don't care but they also don't care so they don't do a lot to improve the format and so you know i think giving a little bit more member input or feedback on that would be helpful in the future even though they're not focused on it I strongly believe that the modern testing team should be expanded. There should just be a dedicated team that is in charge of future for like they used to call it Mark Rosewater used to talk about the future future league for standard. Right. And I don't see why that's not just a dedicated part of their budget, a team whose job is to be modern experts. And, and that, that can be people whose full time job is to track both modern and pioneer, right? Or modern pioneer and standard. Make that team whatever the appropriate size is. In the grand scheme of a billion-dollar brand, we're not talking about that much HR budget, right? You're talking about half million to a million dollars worth of salary a year to make sure that your format's in a really good place and that these people get a get a chance to extensively test new to direct-to-format cards in things like the Lord of the Rings product so that they can go, you know, if you have Ragavan and Frodo in play... And Frodo is a 2-1 white creature for one white, and he's unblockable if you've got another creature in play that, for instance, could be Ragavan. And Ragavan makes a treasure when he attacks, and Frodo sacks a treasure to win the game. We might have a problem here. And I think it's pretty clear that a lot of that has not gone on, because things like the you know Solitude, Grief, Fury, Renin 6, a bunch of other cards seem pushed to the point of yeah, these are good cards to sell products with, but probably deserved little tweaks here and there to just bring their power level a little bit further down. So with Modern Horizons 2, I do think they learned some lessons. They brought in some pros, at least for that set. And really, I mean, outside of Legacy, because Legacy, again, they don't test for, it's not their priority, but in Modern... I think they do a very good job of pushing the limits without having bans, right? Urza's, Urza's Saga, Regavan, some of these other cards that are clearly very pushed. They walked right up to that line, but they didn't cross it in most ways. Um, people might argue whether or not they think it's healthy for the format and this and that, but unlike Modern Horizons 1, where they you know had, had some other issues, Modern Horizons 2... Hogak. Yeah, Hogak. I mean, Modern Horizons 2 is much more balanced... Um, it's powerful, and that was the intention, but it, it did seem like the pros coming in seemed to work. And, you know, the more they can put resources into that, the better. And I think Huey Jensen doing competitive over at Watsi really helps provide some stable direction for competitive play. Um, everyone respects him, I think. And we haven't seen the fruits of his labor entirely yet, but I do think it's on a better path than it was a year or two ago. Um, and I think there's a broad acknowledgement of that. So hopefully we continue to see improvements in a year or two from now. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot more gains in terms of continuing those trends um, in both playtest and in competitive play. All right, so moving on over to this Legacy Showcase qualifier on December 11th. We haven't looked at Legacy a lot lately. I was expecting to see a bunch of these white plume adventurers all over this top eight, but it looks like people have, uh, at least for the time being, found answers. Blue-Red Murktide took first, second, and third here. So Blue-Red Murktide still doing well, even without 
Dragovan. Uh, Elves in 4th and 5th. Blue-White Stone Blade in 6th. Blue-Red Murktide again in 7th. And Bant Stone Blade being the most interesting deck here in 8th. This is a whole bunch of value creatures uh, on that Bant axis. So we've got Birds of Paradise, True Name Nemesis, Endurance, Stoneforge Mystic, Brazen Borrower, Two Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, Four Noble Hierarch, Four White Plume Adventurer. There we go with those. Two Touch the Spirit Realm, a card that is surprisingly seeing fairly broad play in this format. One Calder Complete, One Umazawa's Jit, and Four Force of Will, Four Swords to Plowshares, Four Brainstorm, Four Ponder, and a Prismatic Ending. Yeah, this is quite the deck, so... Just kind of looking, I'm just kind of absorbing it. It is a lot of things going on, honestly. This is kind of a hybrid of a lot of the things that we're seeing, but in different ways. Um, not There's like some elements from old counterbalance yeah. decks. There's some Stoneforge Mystic package action. A little bit of, you know, mid-rangey endurance. Right. Uro it, off the back of a Noble Hierarch on turn one. Yeah, and I, I've, I have heard people trying out True Name more often because initiative if you're able to steal it and protect against it you can do pretty well true name does a good job at both of those and they don't have counters so playing a three drop isn't uh as susceptible to you know if you're playing against delver you're not hitting a daze as often uh, but this combines a lot of different things right so you have the, the like you said the white white plume adventurers so you have your own initiative you have the true name but you also have the equipment and touch of the spirit realm is just kind of thrown in there um it's interesting. I haven't seen this before. I'd be curious to see if it uh, plays more often. Usually when we see these type of value builds, they're four-color control, where you're countering a lot, you're destroying a lot, and then playing an Uro and or, and or Minsk and Boo, and kind of pinging them off slowly over time. Um, this is not one I'm as familiar with. Yeah. All right, moving on over to Top Paper Movers. Relatively shallow pool of things to review this week. Underworld Breach from Theros Beyond Death has been showing movement across multiple versions. Somebody mentioned that fo- regular foils were down to under 10 listings. Foil Extended Arts and Extended Arts have been making me money for the better part of the last year. And this is not seen a reprint of any kind since it's printing almost two years ago in Theros Beyond Death. I would imagine they will get around to that. That could easily happen in a secret layer in the next year or show up as a renamed card, perhaps, in the Lord of the Rings set. That's certainly a possibility. But anyway, Underworld Breach on the move. It's in 74,000 decks on EDH Rec, so I was noting to the pro traders in the Discord earlier this week that any amount of competitive play in Modern and or elsewhere, and I guess this sometimes shows up in Legacy and Vintage as well, will certainly help to move the needle on an already popular card. We've got Academy Ruins out of the Secret Lair ancillary set this is from the heads or tails deck that shipped not too long ago that people bought a whole year ago and they took a full year to ship them going 12 to 16 i've heard singles from those decks are selling well and that most of them dipped kind of on opening weekend but a lot of the key cards are already uh, making a comeback which suggests there isn't too much of that product in the market as of yet Rogue Class, the Ampersand promo version foils, um, going from 20 to 28. It's in 12,000 decks on EDH Rec. Quite a good deck if you are building aggro in blue-black and want to get some free card advantage out of that. Uh, Has a curiosity-esque kind of effect and gives creatures menace. So I play this regularly in my copies in my Ninjas deck, uh, whether it's Yuriko or Satoru. Uh, This does a lot of work. 
Soul rings, if they're nice, tend to make money, and the Secret Layer non-foil Pride version is no exception. It went 13 to 18 this week. I've got a copy, foil copy of that in my Jota Transformers deck for EDH. Seasoned Dungeoneer, aforementioned in uh, some of the Legacy decks, going from 10 to 14. Those can be found in Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate uh, collector boosters. Goblin Welder out of Urza's Legacy, 16 to 25. That's the OG printing of a card that, you know, there's a lot of artifact decks getting built right now, so people are fooling around with Welder and Engineer and other artifact-relevant stuff, in Commander especially. Fading Hope out of Double Feature, foils, silver screen foils especially, um, 8 to 13. This looks a lot like just the regular double feature silver screen targeting that we've seen for the better part of the last six months. Yep, so going through that list, let's see. Underworld Breach, you mentioned Legacy. I just want to point out uh, another one that's another one of these cards that's banned in Legacy. It was just absolutely Oh, broken. that's already banned? But it's but legal and vintage. Legal and vintage, for definitely. And, right. And, and those, it. it can be better than um, the alternatives. But uh, yeah, I, the heads, fl- heads are uh, the, the t- coin flip secret layer. Um, we, you know, those hit, and I've been very happy to see those rebound. It's one of those things where it's the first product of its kind, and usually when you're watching these things, I mean, just looking forward, you think of Mythic Edition, you think of this, you, there's many others where if it's the first thing, Watsy tends to push a pretty good product out the gate, because they want people to go, oh, that was good, set that anchor, and then hook people in for future versions. Um, this was good. 40K was you know closely followed by it and also did well. So nice to see that. Uh, I don't know if we'll see it in the future, but hopefully. And then that Soul Ring, you know, I was looking back at the Magic is Black, Black is Magic um, Soul Ring, and those are doing very well. This seems to be on the same trajectory. So I think we'll probably get to close com- comparisons there where they're up to you know mid-20s in the next year or so. And it goes to show that if a card is in, you know, the top 50 cards in EDH or something, it can survive multiple printings on the basis that people still want the fanciest new version or a specific version that appeals to them for whatever reason. Certainly. And there is so much demand, you know, hundreds of thousands of players, all of which include a soul ring in every one of their EDH decks, that you can overcome the constant reprintings. Yep, agreed. Moving on, we've got Lazel Vlakith's Champion out of Commander Legends uh, Battle for Baldur's Gate. This is a card that interacts with putting tokens, uh, sorry, counters on things, including planeswalkers and creatures with counters. And I think it also affects counters on players. Foils going from three to five. It's in 13,000 decks on EDH Rec. It's a strong Atraxa slash, you know, Counters Matters card. People might be going after this because they know that there are the count, the new poison. Uh, toxicity counters, I think they're called, coming in Phyrexia all will be one, and they figure there might be something uh, to leverage off the basis of that. Don't think that that connection is super strong, but I guess we'll see how that plays out. Cold Steel Heart, which is out of the Jumpstart 2022 product, uh, a bunch of the main draw of that product is that it's a probably going to not sell all that well. And there is a bunch of anime alt art in there that is commanding a significant premium for key cards. This is one such card going from $8 to 16 on the back of that anime art targeting. We've got an interesting one here in the second last slot, Caves of Chaos Adventurer, foil extended art. 
This is a initiative card that to me looks like a speculative swipe at something that they figured might be a card that would make a move like the white cards did. This thing is a 5-3 for 4. It has Trample. It's a human barbarian. It enters the battlefield. You take the initiative, so you could use it to counter what the white decks are doing in Legacy. Whenever, by taking the initiative back, whenever Caves of Chaos Adventurer attacks, exile the top card of your library. If you've completed a dungeon, you may play that card this turn without paying its mana cost. Otherwise, you may play that card this turn. So I assume this is tech that showed up somewhere in a Legacy event and people are going after it. Yeah, it's been showing up here and there. Uh, just looked up. There's a lot of lists with it. it. Just in the last 30 days, there's been 79 legacy lists either in paper or online including you know just kind of three four color piles that added in uh, red white decks oftentimes just to add more and then even just mono red prison decks that throw it in there to have the initiative angle in addition to their normal things this spiked pretty hard right when it came out it was one of the first initiative cards that saw play kind of took a dive on magic online at least and then came back now that it's getting you know some cross promotion with the white initiative card so i don't think it's that great it's definitely i mean one of the things that makes the good um the white cards good is that it's not the cards themselves it's that they're being accelerated out through soul lands through um chrome mocks and you know other things like that to accelerate them and get on turn one turn two to so if this is in one of those type of decks like mono red prison where they're already doing those type of strategies it can be pretty good but if you're playing it as a fair four mana card just to get the initiative you're gonna get wrecked so it all depends on the build but it has been seen as a play I would imagine in the sometimes mono red decks, like sneak attacky decks in Legacy, are running eight lands that generate two mana. Yeah. So I would imagine the four, you know, three in a red is pretty palatable and with that mana base. Yeah. Plus, Simeon Spirit Guards, our guides are in there oftentimes as well. So you have a lot of opportunities to throw it out. Lotus petals. Yep. All right, so topping this list, we've got Canoptech Spider, Surge Foils. This is a 4-4 flyer for 5, and it has Fabricator Claw Array. Definition, whenever another non-token artifact creature or vehicle enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. Very middling EDH vehicles and artifact creatures focus card. It looks like to me like it's getting targeted as part of this domino effect on Surge Foils. Last I heard, there are fresh uh, 40k decks landing, or that they've gone back to the printing press on. Don't think it includes the foil decks, but the non-foil decks will certainly be an additional circulation this winter. So I would stick to the surge foils if you're going after 40k for now. Yeah, and even then, I mean, if the the regular copies get down pretty low, even though it's only indirect, I do think that pressures the multiplier for the surge foils indirectly. So, you know, these are the type of things. I look at this card, I go, meh, looks kind of like you said, just a speculator pick that that took up a lot of copies. Who knows in the end, but I, I wouldn't be happy to be holding it personally. All right, want to tell me about the big movers on Magic Online this week? Sure. These are all generated really by the treasure chest update that was announced at 2 or so a.m. this morning Eastern time, which why are they putting out release dates at the time? I don't know, but uh, I'll take it. Um, so they they made a bunch of changes, and many of them were pulling cards that were previously in the treasure chest to lower their costs out, or at least um, partially out. And so we saw Regavan go from 30 ticks to 40 ticks in response to having a dramatically lower drop rate within the treasure chest. Uh, similarly, Graveyard Trespasser, which at one point was up to 50 tickets or so, dropped 
to four as in response to the uh, treasure chest change it jumped back up to six and a half tickets and I think that we might might see that continue to climb uh, we also saw den of the bugbear go from six and a half tickets to 14 um, and of course this has seen wide play in a lot of, in modern in pioneer uh, and in potentially in other formats and this used to be a 50 60. I think at one point almost a 70 ticket card. So uh, not super shocking that now that the supply is starting to dry up again on this that it got a boost. But uh, so basically all these are seeing a bump. We'll see if they stick. But uh, treasure chests are a integral part of that magic online economy. So any change in the formulation of the drop really does change the supply for a card going forward. So we're seeing that in, in reflect in the price. Gotcha. Uh, I would imagine that Shieldred being included in the treasure chests is pushing her back down the other direction. Yeah, a little bit, um, as well as the redemption potentially. So the the redemption is, I think, a big push on the Brothers War cards in general. We've talked about that with Shieldred. Um, it is unclear how long they will continue to have those in supply uh, for redemption. So previously, it used to be a set time period. They said you have X number of months. Uh, it's guaranteed until then and at a certain point it's guaranteed to fall off of redemption now they just said we have them in the warehouse when they're gone they're gone and so you know i think that's one where you know it fluctuates based on the redemption schedule that said it's still up um as a set overall so the um pulling it up here but the when i talked about dominaria united uh, about a month ago, it was at 105 ticks, roughly. It had peaked at 133 tickets recently for a set, and now it's down to 123. So, uh, unclear. You know, these things fluctuate. They go up and down. But I do think the redemption is still uh, pressuring, but the uh, Shieldred definitely dropped today as a result of treasure chests. Um, and the mo- the mono-white initiative creatures got included here and would be good shorts, right? Yeah, so, I mean, somewhat missed the boat, but not quite. Uh, so they were 70 to 80 tickets at their at their peak. Uh, during Eternal Weekend, they were hovering around 50 to 70 per card, um, depending on which one you're talking about. Uh, so I recommended shorting them around... I think one was 50, one was 57 when we sh- when I recommended shorting them. And within 24 hours, they were already down. Collectively, you bought a playset of each of the two white initiative cards. Uh, you were up probably about 140 tickets net profit in that 24-hour period. So that's one of those where, you know, it's it telegraphed, right? Even without the treasure chest, it was like, okay, well, everyone needs a copy for Eternal Weekend. There's this online tournament that's once a year that everyone plays in. So, of course, the prices go way up, and, you know, ideally you should have been buying in advance of that, but the shorts are the the easier back end of that. And so now they've started to collapse, and then in Treasure Chest, they just came out as a huge drop rate in an effort to tamp down the prices, which is going to suppress them further. So my guess is these previously $70 cards in a month will be 5 bucks, 10 tops. Um, We've seen that with Minsk and Boo. Um, the turtle that was running around Legacy, tormenting it for a few weeks. Capacannoneer. Yep, Capacannoneer. All right, we can move on over to our cards to watch here. I've got a couple for us, and you've got uh, a Magic Online-related selection. Plaza of Heroes foil extended art out of Dominaria United has been on my radar from the very beginning, but as a rare in that set, in, an, in a set that is pretty stacked, has Liliana, has Shieldred, and a bunch of other good mythics, 
felt very likely that we were going to want to wait some number of months for the price to come down. And indeed, this price started up around the mid-20s on these foil extended arts and has done nothing but drop right up until late November, early December, and it seems like it might be bouncing off the bottom here. So I'm not convinced that at the current $10 to $11 price tag, you need to get in right this moment. There's usually some decent price weakness through... Uh, December and into early January, and it's entirely possible that you can wait on these a little longer and scoop some seven or eight dollar copies down the road. I'd be pretty surprised to see these at three to five, given that this is the number one EDH card out of Dominaria United. It's in twenty three thousand decks on EDH Rec already. Five percent of all decks run this card, and Joda, which is one of the top three commanders and has been more or less all the way through this fall. It's in 58% of those decks, including the Jota Transformers deck that I built myself. This card does a lot of things that you want to be doing in Commander. It taps for colorless, so that's your fail case. It taps to add one mana of any color, but you can only use it to cast a legendary spell. So that can be legendary creature, a planeswalker, what have you. You can tap to add one mana of any color among legendary permanents you control. So once you've dropped a multicolored legend, now you've got this makes multiple colors of mana. And then it's got a tacked on ability, three tap, exile it, target legendary creature gains hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. So it's got a kind of uh, silver, silver shield defense against a targeted removal spell or a sweeper that might be taking care of your commander. And if you need to keep that commander on the board to keep your game plan rolling, Plaza gives you uh, a fairly unique access to such an ability. Because of all of that, it's kind of an obvious spec. Um, It's also a card that I could see them reprinting in commander decks in regular form, semi-regularly. But I think the fanciest version of it will be a secret layer target, probably a little further down the road, a year, two years, three years from now, you'll see it for sure. And for the time being, I think if you got in at around 11, sometime in the next 12 to 16 months, if it dodges a fancy reprint that could be even nicer, then I think you're going to see these go from, let's call it 10 or 11 to somewhere in the early 20s. So I think that, I mean, they're not the same card, but one of the things that popped in my head is a comparable utility card that seemed not great, but people played a lot was War Room, uh, which of course is the tap for one colorless or pay three and tap... Uh, pay life equal to the number of colors of your commander's identity and draw a card. Uh, this is one of those that everyone's kind of like, eh, it looks fine, it looks like a nice utility, but will people play it? And they did, and we saw the price go from, for the extended art foils and commander, uh, original commander legends, go from, uh, I think they, they bottomed out around $11, and now they're 25 despite a reprint of the basic version in... Some deck, I can't, who can keep track these days, uh, but it has been reprinted and it hasn't really affected the premium treatment. So I think that's the pa- I, I agree, like the pattern is that it, it kind of bottomed up pretty early in that set and then just slowly recovered and has done ever since. I do think this is a very heavily open set, so I, I worry about getting in more than eight nine dollars uh, that i would like to see that type of floor just because i think it'll continue to drop for a little while just because there's so much in that set uh but bottom line i think yeah the, the card's great in, in the long-term sense it's the top card from the set um absent a premium reprint which you know i don't see happening but you never know with watsy it should continue to grow and you know get that double up gain after fees hit 70 percent profit and move on to your next target 
War Room's a little tricky as a comparable because it came from Commander Legends, which of course was a premium set with premium price tags on it. But if we look at something like Professional Facebreaker, uh, Foil Extended Arts at a Streets of New Capenna, that's a card with a ton of commander play due to its uh, treasure synergies. And it has been on a similar mid-20s, you know, constant slide. And as a card that came out four months before uh, Plaza of Heroes, I think it's a pretty solid comparable. These have gotten down to, you know, had a point where they were 7 or $8 by August after being released in late March. So that's fairly comparable to where Plaza of Heroes is now. And since that point, they did bounce up, got, got up a little back to 9 and then slid again down to 6 or 7 so it's entirely possible that that's what you're looking at with Plaza of Heroes and that the correct buy-in will be somewhere this winter or this spring and it will get down to that 6 or $7 range. Thing is, there's a relatively steep ramp on these and the overall utility of the card I think is higher here than it is on something like Facebreaker. So it could be that that will keep it propped up by a dollar or two extra. I will probably grab a few at this $10 price point and then watch to see what happens. Is that push it up to 12 to 14 or do, are we going to see additional weakness then decide what to do from there? But I do know that this is a future 20 to $30 card and I'm going to want to have some in the portfolio. Yep. I think just a matter of timing and price, but I agree long-term. All right. What about your selection this week? So last time I talked about a redemption set, it was more of a Turn it into paper, you get a little modest profit. Here, I'm going to talk about the next redemption set where you can literally flip to a buy list and make a pretty solid profit. You don't even have to actually sell the cards. Um, so I was shocked to see that Brothers War um, buy lists are crazy strong. So if you just look at, at CK, you put in one set of the top you know 20 cards in Brothers War, it's about $187 roughly in US. And right now, a redemption set for Brothers War is roughly, if you add in all the fees and shipping and everything, it's about $140. And so there is a massive gap there um, that even if it slides a little bit over you know the month it would take you to redeem cards and get them and then buy list them and get them shipped off, I think you'd probably stand to make between 20 to $30 per set of just easy flipping. And if you're getting credit, you're getting even more. And so my recommendation is to immediately uh, flip, on, go online if you have tickets or you get, you're get you able to get access to tickets to buy into a, a few sets of Brothers War uh, cards, turn them into Magic Online in the redemption system, and then flip them to either a buy list or if you're on, you know, obviously a platform that permits um, full sale, that would be even better, most likely, just depending on kind of where you're at. Uh, but I think you'll be able to turn it for about a thirty to forty dollar profit as of right now, and even if that slides, I think it's a twenty to thirty dollar easy gain uh, over the next three weeks because this redemption is actually live currently. Uh, they did it right away after the set kind of launched online. Right. So fairly unusual to be able to pull this little trick off. And obviously you're not going to wait too lo- want to wait too long because as this information spreads, the door on this opportunity is likely to close. Yeah. Yep. I get in it. So uh, magic online is an, a first come first serve system. So you're the first person to request the large cash out. You'll be the first one to get the ship notification, which means you can be the first one to send into card kingdom and lock in those prices. Um, so I have done, I did 16 for Dominaria United sets 
which was the first time I'd done really redemption. And this set, I'm planning to do 40 sets um, with the goal of, you know, whenever I can get a potential profit with limited downside risk, I'll take it, right? And here, the downside is, okay, maybe the, the prices here just completely bottom out. The buy list cuts in half and you're turning in for $120 instead of $140. Like, that's not great, but like considering that's unlikely and your your upside is a, you know, a pretty solid, reasonable incremental gain, seems pretty good. So I am definitely taking advantage of this. Um, I do think, like you said, this is something where if you're here in the cast, either do it or don't, but don't hesitate because if you're waiting a week or two, that could fundamentally change the game, as it says. So how many sets are you going to snag? I snaped 40 of bro. Um, wow. I, I'm very, I mean, this is one where it's just strict map, right? Like I, worse comes worse. I break even in my opinion. And that is just fine. Um, takes th- up to three weeks to ship. So, you know, these things could slide, but uh, it's partially, I have a, an excess of ticks from trading and I need an outlet for them. The magic online tick prices are down to about uh, 88 cents roughly for uh, compared to a dollar. Uh, US dollar. So it's one of those things where I need an outlet anyway. This is a great outlet. I can always buy in through vendors or other pro traders um, at a very reasonable clip. So might as well take the profits while I can. It's kind of somewhat free money. Obviously, not not really. There's risk there, but seemed like a solid play. I mean, given the number of days of lag between us recording this and it coming out, which is one for the pro traders and three for everybody else. By the time you get your sets, which I'm presuming I have already been ordered and submit 40 full sets to CK, this could easily evaporate. So there is that word of caution for folks. Yeah. And so like my plan is to do a mixture of both, right? So like I'm on TCG direct and you can get better prices on direct and you can also sell the, any, anything above basically 30 cents uh, for, for half price up to $3. So I can just take, half of these sets or more depending on how i'm feeling throw them to tcg player submit um to buy list for the other 20 and you know it's one of those things where like yeah some of it will maybe evaporate but um if i was a listener i would recommend doing four right like it's not your thing you're trying it out you're trying to learn um that gives you a play set i think that's probably a good place to be um, but obviously I'm a little bit more deeper than, than some of our listeners on the Magic Online market. Alrighty. I got one last selection this week, which is a bit of a stretch, depending on how much we decide we like uh, the odds that people are going to be building around the new Elish Norn that was revealed today as part of Phyrexia All Will Be One. This new Elish Norn is very medium to my eye. There was a, a supposedly leaked version that was floating around a while back that has now been disproven. And instead, we are given, you know, a, a fancy panharmonicon, for, for lack of a better term. This is Elish Norn, Mother of Machines. She costs four and a white. She's a four-seven with vigilance. And if a permanent enters the battlefield, cause, causes... If a permanent entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, the ability triggers an additional time. Permanents entering the battlefield don't cause abilities of permanents your opponents control to trigger. So notably, Panharmonicon, of course, didn't do any kind of reverse effect on your opponents and uh, only worked with artifacts and creatures, if I'm not mistaken, not enchantments and lands. So Elishnorn does have a broader profile. She's not nearly as impactful i don't think as shieldred um which is a dominating card in edh and elsewhere 
Uh, Elish looks to me more like a doubling season type card where she's going to be... Some people will build her as a commander and otherwise she'll find her way into the 99 of certain decks. You know, stacks style decks may may have interest and white decks in general may just decide to run it because it's cool. The card I'm looking at that's related is, you know, people were talking about how Oblivion Rings get double targets with this Elish Norn. Well, the best of the Oblivion Rings in Commander Circles is Grasp of Fate. Grasp of Fate is one double white for an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield for each opponent, exile up to one target non-land permanent that player controls until Grasp of Fate leaves the battlefield. So with Elish Norn, you pick six things, two on for each of your opponents, and exile all of them for three mana. So you get a very targeted sweeper that deals with a lot of problems at once. Now, you would think this is the kind of card they've reprinted a whole bunch of times, but indeed they have not. It's only appeared in Commander 2015 and as a mystery booster card, and the inventory for the 2015 copies is about 47 listings, starting at 5 or $6, and I could easily see a situation where Elish Norn is getting built to an extent that people start looking for the cards that combo with her the best, and it turns out that Grasp of Fate will be a card that a lot of people want to add. There are no fancy versions of this card. There are no foil versions of this card. There are no extended arts. There is no secret layer. So the primary risk here is that there will be... We know that there are three secret layers coming out alongside Phyrexia All Will Be One. And if Grasp of Fate was included there to complement Elish Norn, then that might knock the wind out of the sails here. Hmm. I like it. Um, low supply, but yeah, you gotta dodge the reprint, reprint, but there's not many old cards like this that have, you know, 21,000 decks is nothing to scoff at, um, and I'd never heard of it, I'm sure many others, but that's the beauty of EDH Rec, right? If you're going on there, you're looking up Elish Norn, and you're seeing this in a lot of decks, you're probably gonna try to pick up your copy. Um, the buy-in's pretty cheap, so it's kind of little downside. I know the buy list backing is not really there yet, like the... At least on the Mystery Boosters edition, they're they're not buying on CK yet for this edition. So yep, there is um, that. Yeah, so it's one of those things where I think there there is some risk there um, that you might just kept get caught holding. But um, it's interesting. I, I mean, it seems to go well with it. I, I kind of defer to some of the the larger EDH players about how strong it is of a synergy, but it seems interesting. I think the synergy is really strong. I'm just not convinced that Elish Norn is going to be a top three commander this season. Right. So I think right. that's the bigger risk. I would want to wait and see how early numbers shape up on EDH rec before targeting something like this. But you're going to want to make a list of the things that coming into play in mono white are going to do the most work. Obviously, things like your solemn simulacrums are, that are already super staples in the format, especially in the, in the less competitive tables, are going to be auto-includes. But you want to find the ones that have had relatively few printings and could easily push up under supply pressure yeah i mean looking at elish norn it always made sense to me to have it be more of a uh you know within the last 24 hours but uh made sense to me to be more of an, a 99 card than in commander because it is just mono white and so i'm sure there's things that go well with her but it is pretty limited i would think well there are I would have preferred to see her as a white-black card here because that would really open up your options for come-into-play come abilities. But there are plenty of thing white cards that do fun things when you get to double them. <laughs> and there's right. plenty of artifacts that likewise. There's also, you know, lands. Yeah. So so like Vorin Clex, Monstrous Raider, obviously they're not completely comparable, but, you know, like a similar vein, one's five, one's six. 
They both do things. That is only in 2,000 decks as a commander versus 33,000 decks in the 99. 33,000. So. I, I think Elish Norton could, could end up in a similar position. That's entirely yeah. possible. Uh, P- commander players do not like to be limited, and there are very relatively few mono-colored commanders in the top 20 as a result. People want to build willy-nilly. And that's, that's why Joda the Unifier is so popular, because you can build it so many different ways. Ditto, Atraxa, Brea, etc. Right. So, Grasp of Fate, card I'm going to keep my eye on. I'm not jumping in to buy any just yet. Just card to watch. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about everything that they showed off today with regards to Phyrexia All Will Be One. We had our first previews uh, something like less than a week after they showed us everything in Dominaria Remastered. When we recorded last week, we had seen half of uh, Dominaria Remastered. The next day, they gave us most of the rest of it. Not a whole lot of notable includes there. It's a great set, very solid mythics and some strong rares getting a reprint, some really cool art being introduced, and it's going to be a popular product with, I think, players and collectors. And it's funny because you can tell Wizards knows that the product pace that they've had to set here is going over very poorly. They've already moved back this Phyrexian set uh, a week. It was supposed to be February 3rd, now it's February 10th. That gives one month of breathing room between Dominaria Remastered and Phyrexia All Will Be One. But because they got the preview season out of the way for Dominaria Remastered already, that's just kind of be kind of like a shadow launch where they probably make some noise about it the week of launch. But otherwise, the next month will be all about Phyrexia All Will Be One, leading into the full reveals by early mid-January, and then the set comes out February 10th. Then they're giving us a gap until April 25th, First, I believe, is the date. Could be the 24th for March of the Machine, which is the follow-up set. And then right after that, there is some kind of weird new set they they say they've never done before, which is March of the Machine, colon, Aftermath. But we don't know anything about that yet. So what did they show us for this set today? In summary, lots of amazing art. I think Phyrexian aesthetic is probably one of the strongest parts of the Magic IP, one of the most unique it's got like a real Hellraiser kind of futuristic horror vibe going on and seems to do very well with the player base. They gave us a bunch of tidbits. There's 10 command, uh, sorry, ten Planeswalkers in this set, presumably several of which will be rare. It would be pretty normal for us to get something like three Mythic Planeswalkers and seven rare Planeswalkers. We know that the Planeswalkers included are Jace, Kaito, Kaya, Koth, Luka, Nahiri, Nessa, Tyvar, who's the elfin planeswalker from Kaldheim that barely got barely a blip on the radar for most people, Vraska from Ravnica and Jace's ex, and the Wandering Emperor. The Pro Traders were discussing today a card uh, that was called Assemble the Team, and it was a green-black search spell, and it seemed to have five planeswalkers standing together. And seem to suggest that the evil planeswalkers might be, uh, I think it was Nahiri, Nissa, the Tyvar, Wandering Emperor, right. Tyvar, and I can't remember if it was Kaya or Vraska. But anyway, half of these planeswalkers are going to turn bad. That's the bottom line. 
They showed off the Cloth card, which is at rare. Cloth Fire of Resistance. Two red red for a four loyalty planeswalker. Plus two, search your library for a basic mountain card. Reveal it, put in your hand, then shuffle. Minus three, Cloth Fire of Resistance deals damage to target creature equal to the number of mountains you control. And then minus seven, you get an emblem with whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control, this emblem deals four damage to any target. Looks very medium to me. Yep. Very medium. I mean, it's fine, but nothing that screams super powerful to me, at least in first blush. Jor Kadeen, first gold warden, red, white, 2-2, human rebel. Rebels are back, and in fact are the theme of one of the two commander decks that are associated with this set release. It's a 2-2 trample. Whenever Jor Kadeen, first gold warden, attacks, it gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of equipped creatures you control. Then if Jor Kadeen's power is four or greater, draw a card. There is a, uh, a critical mass of equipment matters cards in red-white that have been building up over the last three or four years, and I suspect that those decks are getting more and more powerful in Commander. Yeah, when I saw it, I go, oh, look, a red-white creature that does equip things. Like, shocking. They they rarely have financial relevance, (laughs) but I think that deck is getting good. Uh, Phyrexian Obliterator is getting a reprint at Mythic. Don't know what that's going to look like in Standard Pioneer gets to cast this thing with Nykthos. That seems nat- potentially nasty. This is a 5-5 trample. Whenever a source deals damage to it, that source's controller sacrifices that many permanents, so you better be stacking your exile effects, folks, because <laughs> dealing yeah. damage with red spells is not how you get rid of an obliterator. Right. I mean, the only good thing is that it's competing for the four-mana slot against Shieldred, which is obviously powerful in its own right. And so between the two of them... You know, you can only fit so many four mana creatures, even with a Nixos. So, and you also have other competing slots too. But I think that's the the main competition at this point. The likelihood of it seeing play seems to be directly related to how good the red decks are, right? Uh, red or I mean, so the mono black has always been kind of just sitting there waiting for its time. It was really good in Pioneer when it started and for the first year then it kind of faded but with gix and this and you know some other things all it takes will just that little bit to push it over the edge um i don't know if this is it but down the line at some point it should see play again it's just a matter of when i think it looks like in the art this is this he's he's wearing a person as a finger puppet (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty nasty actually apparently it's Apparently, actually, given the quote, which is, show me what Norn's sycophants are hiding under all that pretty porcelain from Shieldred, it sounds like there's uh, Shieldred versus Elish Norn battle brewing. Mm. Now, Elish Norn Mother Machines, they showed us so many treatments, I don't know if I can even remember them all off the top. We've got regular treatment that has art by Martina Fakova, and this art is incredible. I wish they had done the, found a way to do this card sideways because the art really deserves it. It's incredible. Uh, it's like Elish Norn up on a like throne podium with like a million statues around her or Phyrexians, I suppose. There is, of course, the completion of the Praetor cycle as Phyrexian with Phyrexian language. So we know that the Shieldred foil phyrexian is the most expensive variant of shieldred from dominaria united it's over a hundred dollars i just had the pleasure of leveraging the um, coalition issues in that set the other day 
cracked a fresh case and bit off a, a CB box, not expecting much because your average opening there is not going to be fantastic. And instead got hit with a box that had foil Phyrexian, Shieldred, foil Showcase Shieldred, foil ex- uh, Borderless Liliana, and foil Liliana. So basically Commander Collection Black the way people wish it had been. <laughs> nice. And... To my eye, at least with Shieldred, the showcase foil is the nicest. And I think, I don't know which one I like of the Elish Norns the best here, but there are a lot of options. They showed off a manga variant for a few cards that is very intriguing. The Elish Norn one is done by Junji Ito, who is the horror manga artist that did the recent secret layer that is expected to do very well. And I'm not a huge fan of the art as it turned out, but if you're a fan of Junji Ito, you're probably going to be big into this. And I would imagine this version maybe ends up the most expensive one in Japan. Um, There's also, they showed off the manga alt art for Koth. They showed it off for Jor Kadin, first Gold Warden, all very cool looking cards. It's it's like a, a black and white manga style for all of them, but done by different artists. They also showed off concept art that was done by Richard Witters for all five of the Praetors. Elish Norn, Gingitaxius, Shieldred, Urabrask, and Forenclex. Notably, this means the four former Praetors from the last year cycle starting in Kel time with Forenclex are getting a un- un- fresh reprint. There's There are copies that will be in the market. And apparently these are not collector... None of these variants that we discussed are... Uh, exclusive to the collector boosters. They're just at a much lower drop rate, but this time all the way down to draft boosters. And I think this is an attempt to get people more willing to buy draft booster boxes and to slightly boost the expected value in, in, in draft and set booster boxes by allowing more copies uh, of the fancy cards to be available and giving people more reasons to buy at that price point. Unfortunately, that means that there will be more overall in the market. But it's not clear how much until we see the actual drop rates. Uh, I do re- really like this concept art. I think it's great, but it's also alongside a bunch of other great versions. There's no really bad version of Elish Norn is the thing, because uh, they also showed us off these Phyrexian oil versions that kind of look like black-on-white canvas impressionist art. They showed off Elish Norn, Phyrexian Obliterator, and Slowbad Iron Go- Goblin in this style, these are sort of hit or miss. The Obliterator's cool. Elish Norn is good. Probably not the best of, of the bunch. And they also showed us off, apparently the manga ones are called Step and Complete Foil Borderless Manga. I don't know why it's Step and Complete. So that's a mouthful for sure. They also showed off this version that is only going to be, uh, this treatment that is only going to be available in a bundle that's coming out in March. So like a full month after the main set of products comes out, they're releasing this uh, product that is going to be called the Complete Bundle, if I'm not mistaken. And it's one of the most handsome packages I've ever seen for a magic product. It's the kind of thing if you were a YouTuber and you're, you're... want to put some cool magic product in the background for when you're shooting your videos this will be a very popular choice i'm sure and apparently this has this fancy treatment in it that is called raised oil yeah it releases march 3rd and they're called 
oil slick raised foils and they showed off the basic lands that look amazing in that treatment and they showed off the elish norn uh which also looks really good there's also a i I think the highest or the lowest drop rate version is going to be a foil treatment that includes the phyrexian mana symbol kind of dotted all over the card yeah and i think sweet they haven't given us the drop rates yet but i suspect that's going to be the chase cards for the set those are going to be especially hard to find so we'll, we'll have to wait for those reveals do you have any early thoughts on all this? So, yeah, I mean, we've seen about four, five, six printings of a specific card, and it hasn't ever really helped. It only dilutes interest in all versions, except maybe the really, really rare Chase version, but oftentimes they're all pretty comparable to the point where it's kind of fine across the board, but not great, and it just adds to confusion. You shouldn't have five to six versions of a card in a set. You shouldn't. That should be the art for the next decade, right there. And I just, I, I don't get it. I don't. I've never talked to a single player who is happy to have all that. And I get there's alternative motives with you know trying to break up rarities and things like that. But I hate it. Uh, that said, the art is beautiful. Like they really only have one or two bad pieces of art for all of the Elish Norns. Um, so that's I mean one reaction. The the reprints already of all the prior. Phyrexians of Shieldred and Vorinclax and Jinkataxis, I think is another example of them going back to the well earlier than you would think. Um, so the earliest of those is Vorinclax Monstrous Raider. It came out in the spring of 2011, which means it's less than two years old. No, 20, 2021. Yeah, 20, yeah, t- uh, yeah, 2021. Dates are hard, apparently. <laughs> um, 2021, so less than two years. We know Watsi works on like a 18 to 24 month cycle for developing sets and kind of getting things lined up. And so they put all these reprints in before even knowing like what their price points would be at, how successful they were. And obviously they knew they'd be somewhat successful. But again, I think another example of them going to the well and reprints much earlier than I think they have historically. Um, otherwise, I think one card you didn't mention was Blue Sun's Twilight, which was um, sure. one of the, the one of the uh, presumably a cycle. This is a two blue and X uh, for gain control of target creature with mana X or less. If X is five or more, create a token that's a copy of the creature. Um, this card would actually have been pretty exciting to me if it was an instant. Unfortunately, it's a sorcery. I hope the whole cycle is a sorcery because it just kind of makes it more difficult to. Um, really fit into a deck uh you know if it's instant you're very flexible as a sorcery not so much um, so that wasn't very good uh but i do think that cycle could have potential depending on what the others do if they scale like that it has it and it has a bonus at the end if you're doing a lot i am looking forward to seeing the rest of that cycle it's probably worth uh looking back at something like jinja taxius progress tyrant out of kamigawa neon dynasty who is probably the third best uh of the of the cycle maybe maybe no second best he's probably second best after shouldred uh in terms of overall popularity uh in edh and price point the foil etched version of that card which is phyrexian foil etched is about 43 dollars the foil the phyrexian foil is 45 dollars non-foil phyrexian is 18 which is the same as the showcase version at at 18 the showcase foils are at 26 and extended arts are at 10 and 20 for foils uh 
So interest like it's pretty interesting because this this card has a whole bunch of variants. Not as many as Elish Norn's gonna have. She's gonna have a couple extra. But it doesn't seem like they're dragging the card down. And the reason for that is you're not actually getting extra Gingitaxius in the marketplace in that formulation because it was the slots where it could drop were divided by the number of variants. So instead of there being four times as many mythic foils of Gingitaxius, there's a quarter, there's the same amount as there would have been if there was one version. Now, now in this set, it's a little different because they're including them in set boosters and draft boosters. Now in the past, we have seen some variants available in set boosters, but never in draft boosters. So adding them to draft boosters does put more copies in the market. Now, my counterpoint to that is that nobody really, I, I don't think that their print run on draft boosters is all that big anymore because it's basically just exists to support the drafting process as opposed to being a core product. They, they For the average player, they want them buying set boosters and for the collectors and whales, they want them buying collector boosters. So there are definitely more Elish Norns than there would have been otherwise. It is good that it's the end of the cycle because it probably means that's the last Elish Norn you'll see for a while, as opposed to, say, Jinjitaxi's getting a fresh treatment now, like almost a year later. I suspect that the Elish Norn's price success will have less to do with the number of variants and more to do with how popular she is in Commander. Sheoldred has held up very well, and I don't think Sheoldred's price will be challenged by this new concept art version because it's such a popular card. Popular standard, popular in EDH, it's definitely a cube card and and uh, shows up in Pioneer as well. So because of that, Sheoldred can survive a sexy alternate printing a few months later, no problem. Sure. So can it? Yes. Should it have to? No. Oh, oh th- th- this part, there's no there's no disagreement. I, I think that putting formulation necessities aside, because that's really what this is about, if they only gave us the one version, then there's less variation in the collector boosters, they're less interesting to open, you're seeing less new things less often, so you're motivated to open less product, and that's where that all comes from. But from yeah. the player perspective, you and I are completely aligned I would prefer they choose the one or two best possible versions, make one of them extremely rare, the other one relatively easy to open, and roll. Right. So, I mean, I'm just thinking as a player, right? If I'm spending 50 to $55 on a Shildred, and I just pulled the trigger on it, and now I hear there's a reprint of it, whatever, four months after the set just came out, I just shake my head, and the next time I want to buy that $50 card, I go, I'm not going to do it, right? I'm. Why would I do that when the reprint risk isn't two years away, and I have to have it because it's? I need to play it? It's any day you could just throw it in the next set. It's crazy. But but that's just, I don't really think this is all that different than when they introduced Challenger decks, and people thought that that was going to be a massive blow to MGG Finance, but... In reality, a lot of that kind of coincided with the advent of COVID. So it's a little, the waters are a little muddied in terms of what actually happened. Certainly there were cards whose prices were knocked down when they were included at high enough, a high enough number of copies in those decks. But in a lot of cases, the, the cards survived. 
their appearances because sometimes they would take key mythics and they would only put one copy in. Sometimes they would just skip key cards completely. Like if we get challenger decks this winter, will they have a shouldered in it again? They might, but it it might be a single copy. And again, those decks don't sell all that well. So as a relatively low volume ancillary product, I'm not sure it really matters all that much. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, the one that I think is the most... Uh, so the competitive cards, which, I mean, gets back to Sheldra, but also Challenger decks, you have to have a competitive card, right? So there's an impetus to keep costs down there. But for some of these others, like Jenga Tactics, the base version is 850 There's no reason to reprint a card like that, right? So that's I, I, I know we're kind of on the same page. Like, is it fine? Sure, it's fine. But, like... It is important to flag the Jinja Taxius at 850 is not available. Like you're not going to be the drop rate on those is going to be on the concept art is going to be in a huge pool of potential mythics because of all the variants. So uh, it's you're, still you're, something. It's more than nothing. Right. And right now you have a brick of 40 hear, and a brick of 60 at 850 on TCG. That's not a card that needs a reprint. I hear you, but it, but it's also not a card. Where, I don't think that 850 price will move a, a, an iota based on this borderless appearing that borderless might hurt the 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 sales volume for extended arts for instance or might move the showcase non-foil price down from 19 to 15 or something if people prefer the borderless the concept art but in because it's coming out of such a large pool in what will presumably be a fairly crowded slot i just don't think it's going to be all that, all that big a deal. I'd be much more concerned if they were, you know, threw it into a commander deck or something, and then published right. tens of thousands of copies of that commander deck. That that is going to hold you back on the regular copies. But because I'm primarily holding premiums, extra premiums at low drop rates just don't scare me. Like I just, it it has not proven to be a problem. People, I remember when they gave us Mana Crypt like three times in eighteen months or something, and people were like, "Oh, the price of this is dead." Yeah, whatever, man. Go look up the price of Mana Crypt today. It's one of those cards where if if you leave it alone for a couple of years, it goes right back up to two or three hundred dollars, and they will eventually drive it down to the hundred dollar mark. I have little doubt, but it's going to take a while. Like it's going to be a lot of printings, and when they give us extra fancy printings at low drop rates, it does not affect the base. It doesn't hurt the price of the base version. It just divides attention. But if that attention pool is very large, that's fine. It has proven to be fine. So again, we're in agreement. I don't think all of these variants like it. It makes it harder to parse the product. I think from the mark, like the marketer in me looks at that and goes, "You're only you're you're increasingly complicating the story. <laughs> you want people to be able to figure out what products are for them." And I know the like for me, not for me thing is very contentious in the magic community right now. But trust me, you want to live in a world where you understand which products align with your desires. You, you do not want to not know what to buy. Right. And when they keep changing the formulation, they're doing it to kind of keep people off balance so they can't just lock into a certain pattern of, of buying behavior. They want you to kind of go, well, I usually buy set, but maybe I should get CBs this time. Or I never buy draft, but wait, now I can get those in the draft. So I guess this time I'm supposed to buy draft. They want you having those conversations. And that's why they're doing it. Now. They showed us a, f- a few other cool things. They showed off other basics because because Magic just needs more cool basics, right? <laughs> there are the regular basics. There are the Booster Fun. Uh, it looks like they're on Mirrodin, like post Phyrexian domination. 
basics. They look fine. They're full art. They're good. They're not amazing. But what is amazing is the Phyrexian Panorama full art. Oh, wait. No, not not those. Oh, they put the, they titled these very weirdly. They put the titles below. There is the Phyrexianized full art. Very bad naming on a bunch of the terminology in the set. Gotta say. Mark Riddick was the artist that did Crushing Brutality of Lands Secret Layer, which was very popular, has made people money. Very gorgeous. It's actually the sleeves I use on Arena because they're just so good looking. And he did a full set of Phyrexian basics here in the same style. So you've got all five. They all look amazing. They have elements from the various Praetors included. They're, I, I suspect that they will be, they use Phyrexian language on them. I suspect that these are going to be very, very popular, especially Swamps, because Shieldred is probably the prey and maybe the original Elish Norn will be the Praetors that are most built and then to a lesser extent Gingetaxius. So I would imagine that the Esper colored lands will be will do the best over time, but they're all very good looking. Yeah, they're they're pretty, but they're still basics. And as you said, we just have so many now. It's the crushing brutality wounds were special, I think, because not a lot of people ordered them and this and that. But I think these will be. No, I I actually think there's decent EV here to be mined. I suspect that yeah, if you like know a buck you're getting or two, maybe. Well, right. if you if you know you're getting a case of CBs, right, and you know you're going to be opening them opening week, I think you can go ahead and pre-sell like sets of ten of some of the basic lands because they're going to be one per pack for sure in the CBs. So you can kind of do your averages or whatever and figure, okay, I'm I'm opening a case, so I'm going to open sixty boosters, which means I'm going to have twelve of each basic roughly. Right. So I can probably safely sell sets of eight or ten, and you know get a few from another pro trader if I need to like top it up or whatever and pre-sell them and i bet you they're going to sell for somewhere between one and three dollars a basic during the peak of hype and that's pretty decent if you can pull you know 20 or 40 dollars out of your cb case on the basics and do it real quick i think that's fine yeah right away i think that's that's true it'll obviously go down over time for some of them for sure the oil slick ones are going to be I think solid for a long time, though. That's a different matter, because I think that that complete bundle is going to be hard to come by. Sure. Like it's going to be a relatively limited print run, and the stuff that comes out of it is going to be, could be big money for relevant cards. Like, we haven't seen the rest of the set yet, so the set previews will start seeing in early January through the rest of January, so we don't know what the Chase Mythics are in this set yet, but the versions that come in that complete bundle, if they are limited indeed only to that bundle... That bundle is probably going to sell pretty well, and I'd imagine we'll have a group buy on it. Yeah. Now, I guess the last point to be made here is they've continued the universes within program, which is where they take universes beyond externalized IP secret layers, and they bring them back into the fold as magic cards so that they can keep publishing them without having to repay for their licensing fees. Mm. <laughs> that's basically what that's all about. They've done this before with Stranger Things, uh, where they put it into the list. And they're doing the same thing here. They're taking the Street Fighter secret layer drop, taking all of the unique cards that were in that. They gave them a bunch of magic names like Balden, Century Herdmaster, Vikya, Scorching Stalwart, Aisha of Sparks and Smoke. And those will be available in set boosters in the list slot. So I think we've seen some success in the past where the secret layers that have the IP stay very reasonably high priced even though we're seeing reprints on some of the, um, you know, the the basic versions essentially of these cards. So eleven, uh, the mage, which is in foil for 
uh, about eleven fifty non foil for eight. The list version of it uh, is only a like, a little over a buck, and so we've seen that differentiation between supply and demand mixed with the demand. I think for the IP, really keeping the price of the secret layer versions high, which I like. So you're getting the accessibility for the players who want to use these cards, but also keeping the you know secret layer purchasing power and revenue for Watsi high because people know that the kind of premium treatment with the IP will retain value, which I think is a good thing. Players are utterly underestimating the benefit to them that the booster fund era has uh, bestowed vis-a-vis the presence of low drop rate chase cards, sucking up EV and making regular versions of cards cheaper. Yeah, I mean, it's going back to, you know, go back to, you know, a lot of different things where you had the masterpieces and others where, you know, the the regular cards were just dramatically cheaper. Those huge gaps, it's similar to to a different level here, um, which is, I think, great to see. I think the players, this matches what people want, which is simplicity in the sense that you have a basic version that's cheap an expensive version that's not, and the people that want to make their deck flashy can do so, and the people that want it to be cheap can do so, and I, I think that's the best of both worlds. So we get building worlds, and the story begins on January 12th, all the way through the 17th. The set debut and previews officially begin on January 17th. Card preview week is January 17th to the 25th, and then we have pre-release events February 3rd to the 9th. That will be Phyrexia, all will be one, where can people find you online, Derek? Folks can find me online at Oko Assassin on Twitter. Uh, that's about it right now. I've been, been keeping my head down, but uh, try to post there on Magic Online related events as well as some paper things here to there. How about you, James? Where can folks find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Krennic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Lately, we are ordering Dominaria Remastered, Phyrexia All Will Be One, some double feature group by lately. Lots of stuff going on. Double feature. That's, I feel like a lot of these sets, they just get under, uh, you know, over overwhelmed with supply, they drop, and I think that's one that's going to be remembered fondly in a few years. Like, everyone hated it when it came out, but I think it's producing some cool cards. I like it, personally. The, the silver screen foils look good in certain colors, yep. for sure. I've got a few of those on hand. And it's a low supply thing, right? Yeah, like the, definitely. The, a lot of the double feature product probably got destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Not unlike 30th edition. And that can sometimes lead to price acceleration. Yep, definitely. Well, once again, MTG uh, Fast Finance is probably sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best Magic Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% on your order. And to support this podcast, that brings us to the end of this episode, James. As always, really appreciated the discussion. Episode 354, December 13th. Next week might be our end of year review, if not then the year after or the week after. And that will be us going over all the specs from last summer back a year, trying to figure out what worked out, what didn't, and why. So thank you, Derek. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. 